Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
You're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs with me, Giles Bitter, where I tend to ask bands and members of bands about the jobs they've had between tours, after tours, and just generally around playing in a band. And I'm so excited to speak to David Katmer of Tube Lord, well, previously of Tube Lord, because this month I've teamed up with Hassle Records to celebrate their 15th birthday. And for that, they are reissuing Tube Lords, our first American friends, as well as a whole load of other amazing records, including ones by Four Years Strong and Press Club, which are episodes to come later this month, as well as an episode of the founder of the label, Wes himself. So this is David Kammer from Tube Lord. He tells me so much stuff about the economics of touring, of their experiences of being a band in the, in the years that they were a band, as well as the incredible fact that he's training to become a commercial airplane pilot. East London's signature brew have been brewing music-inspired beers with the likes of Mastodon, Slaves, Idols, Enter Shikari, and a whole lot more. And you can get 10% from their website, signaturebrew.co.uk, using the voucher code 101podcast. All right, this is David Katmer from Tubalord. Well, ha- hey, David, what's up? What have you, um, what's going on with you now? I mean, that's a, that's a big question. Uh, it's been, I mean... It's just crazy what's, you know, everything that's happening and, and time going by. This is, this is a weird question because, like, I guess this podcast is about a band that I was in 10 years ago. Um, I assume that's probably the purpose of it rather than just you wanting to catch up with me as, as a human that I am now. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot has happened in 10 years since, since, that, since we recorded stuff that, that we're now putting out again. So, um I mean, I don't even know where to start with what's going on. Um, and then, and then on top of that, everything that's going on right now in the world. So, um, geez, right now, my, my girlfriend's just got ready. She's going to go out and grab some lunch while I record this. I'm sitting in a flat in Coventry. I'm going to go and do some work later on this afternoon. So what took you up to Coventry? Uh, I moved up here for, um, to begin my training as a commercial pilot and I started, um, the, the, oh, wow. I started in, well, about this time last year. Um, or the, you, have to, you have to start doing ground school first. So that's like the theory side of things. You've got to get through 14 subjects in six months with all the exams, pass that, and then you can move on to the actual flight training. So, wow. um, yeah. You think of someone training to be a pilot and, and especially a commercial pilot. I mean, you hear about how doctors have this kind of like years and years of training. Is it mm. how many how many years, like, you know, from an overview, from, from um, deciding you want to be a pilot to sort of being a pilot? Six months of... of of the first bit of training, which is just classroom based. Um, and then, but, but to even get into that, there's application process and, and um, you have to do a few tests, aptitude tests and maths and physics tests um, to kind of make sure that you can handle the stuff that they throw at you. Um, and obviously the aptitude yeah. stuff is just to make sure you can, you know, you are able to multitask and deal with, you know, things going on in a, in a stressful cockpit environment. Um, I'd say the application process takes about six months and then you get in and then ground school starts. And then um, the, the flight training bit should take another another year or so. There's various stages of that. You know, you start off in small airplanes, just doing visual flying and then you move up to instrument flying and all that stuff. So it's, yeah, it's a pretty long and arduous process. Um, well, but... you got the stressful situations part down after being in a band that was touring. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting one because touring for me is, I mean, for most people that have been through it in, you know, in any serious sense, know that it's like, it's such a bizarre thing to go through and it's impossible to really, I don't, I don't think I've seen much 
like in, in terms of like films and TV, I don't think I've seen it portrayed in a way that I thought that actually nailed it. I don't know if maybe maybe you've right. seen something else that does, but like generally if you've either toured or you haven't and trying to explain it to people, people only see the glamorous side and it's like, people don't see that the, the eight hours of sitting in a van crossing Europe doing nothing all yeah. day to just play a show for half an hour. It's like that is that level of, preparation for life I don't, I don't know what that's preparing you for in life but it's like it's uh yeah it's it, it's definitely a strange thing to get used to isn't it that... tracking back to those kinds of years of, of tube lord did the three of you or there's i suppose the, the two of you, you you know you had that sort of two members and you kind of had a revolving basis is that right yeah pretty much yeah i, I it's funny I, I had to look at our wikipedia to kind of remind <laughs> myself of of the uh of the kind of track that we took it's it's which is pretty accurate there's some there's some some wrong things on there as, as all wikis have but it's it's pretty good but yeah it was uh, all ollie was was a part of the band from the beginning and then when we started touring yeah we, we ended up just getting through bases i think we got through like six or seven or eight bass players throughout our career wow. which is pretty impressive <laughs> yeah so yeah. so from your point of view, you know, from your purely kind of individualist point of view, when you started touring, was it this classic, like, you know, us against the world and, you know, we're going to make this happen for us? Um, I think it was more, let's just see what this becomes and if it can become something more than just like a couple of mates playing music for fun. Because it started out at college, it just started out as we we had a module in the studio to like record stuff but it was like a whole group thing there'd be like a whole classroom and then we'd be split into small groups and have to record like voice stuff and it's like i want to record a band playing so we just started the band as a kind of like well you know we can we can record ourselves in the evening and get free studio time and write some music along with it right. and then after a while of doing it it was like oh we're we're you know we're actually a band now that's that's pretty good um and then i don't know I've, the, the way it kind of progresses, you never really have a point where you sit down and have a meeting like, right, what's, what's the plan for five years? You know, like it's not definitely not how like a, a little DIY band forms. You know, it's just like, can we scrape enough money to get to the next gig? And that's really all you can think about. It's, you know, we were like 17, 18. It's like your, you know, your aspirations are pretty low at that point. It's just, can we have fun playing shows? And can we basically play with other bands that we're friends with and write music? you know, that we enjoy. Yeah. I think that's yeah. about as far as, as your aspirations get to at that point. But it changes, right? Because once you Absolutely. get to that point, like you said, after those few hours of the, of the drive, you start thinking like, oh, you know, come on, can we make this sort of, I mean, this, this should be a question, you know, was it a case of like, you know, th this, come on, this should be a bit more organized. We should kind of know what we're doing rather than sort of a crapshoot. I, I mean, I think each person maybe in the back of their mind has like, they have their idea of what they expect from a band that they're in. And that definitely breeds different dynamics in a band. You know, some bands don't make it totally. because there's so many different viewpoints, you know, in, in the band as to what they want out of it. Um, yeah. But with us, it wasn't like, let's get organized and then we can really make it as a band. It was, I think it was just, um, I don't know, damn, it's, it's such a long time ago. Like trying to put myself back in the mindset of someone like literally 15 years ago is yeah. it's, it's yeah. so difficult. And it's, it's hard because you end up like rewriting the history, you know, because you, you know, these are, these are memories that I'm trying to trawl up and like emotions and things that I'm like, is that how I remember it? Like, am I just yeah. saying this? Cause it feels like that's how it was. Um, I mean, it was, it was, it was 
I guess I, I guess the band can progress only as much as the fan base is there to allow it to, right? So it's like you can be a pub rock band playing, you know, one gig a month and like want to play stadiums. But if your music isn't good, that's not going to happen. So it's like there's a kind of it's a kind of reciprocal process. Like if you put out good music, people will like it and they'll invite you to play more, be that, you know, record more or tour more or whatever. Um, I, I think that's the process. So it's like, I, I think I just, at least, you know, when me and Zoe were writing music back in the day, you know, she would write the tracks and then we would jam them out and whatever and, and flush them out and, and make them a bit more coherent. And I think my push was always to try and make them a bit more into like rounded three minute pop songs. And she was very much against that idea. Just like, no, nope, they're going to be linear. They're going to go where they want to go. And I'm like, well, we're not going to, we're not going to get anywhere as a band like that. And I don't think, you know, she definitely won out because our songs were pretty weird and out there, um, which is cool. You know, I, I, I definitely enjoyed the stuff that, that we were playing together. So there was that kind of level of ambition from, from you, because I mean, I know it's pretty, I think it's probably a, a quite a classic thing that people in rock bands, there is that part of your brain that does want to make it a bit poppy, you know, a bit accessible. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, it's, it's like, well, what are your reasons for doing that? Is it that you want to get your music out to more people, it, which right. seems like quite a noble thought, but that, or is it like, are you just doing that because you know that if you do that, you've got more chance of like making a career out of doing something you love, which is still pretty noble. Or is it just like, I can just see the money and I'm just heading straight towards that, you know? I, I think it's an interesting question because like, I, I get it. And it's, it's like the classic thing when a band gets signed to a major, you know, it's so easy to like hear the cries from the ceiling, you know, from the rooftops, mm, you know, mm -hmm. from fans. But ultimately those people are no, making no more money than anyone else with a, a sort of, you know, quote unquote, normal job. Oh, they're making far less. The, the economics of touring. I mean, I'm in, I'm in the lucky position after, after the band finished, I, I've been, I spent the last 10 years tour managing, Oh wow. you know, and that has been, that's been my job. So yeah, like I know the economics of touring inside out. Like I, I know exactly how that stuff works and how little money there is to be made. And it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, people have this, this idea that, that major labels are, you know, that's it. You, you know, you've got a house in the Hollywood Hills now and you're driving a, a you know, Mercedes. It's like, the, the chances are if you're on a major more of your money is going to pay back things rather than more of it going into your pocket so there's there's so many there's so many like misconceptions about about music in that sense i mean the the, the interesting thing to me about the music industry or any entertainment industry really is that economically if you look at it from a strictly economic standpoint it doesn't make any sense there's so much supply and the demand doesn't really meet that in terms of like a band like yeah. ours that were playing to like a hundred people a night, sometimes, you know, as, as few as two people, which we once did. It's like, where, how does that work? Like if that was a business, it would have gone out of business a long time ago. But then you think, well, what's making up the balance sheet? It's the fact that we're doing it for love and we're not getting paid. People wouldn't do that in like, you know, working in like some, you know, say like an, an accountant or something. That's, that's just not how that's going to work. Like other industries do not work um in that way and it shows how how, how far self-motivation goes exactly yeah yeah 100 percent. and it's like this idea that people are following their dreams and so they're willing to put up all of this 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 capital that isn't financial it's simply their time they're willing to put their time and effort into into this into this process on you know on the offshoot on the, you know, sorry, on the off chance that, that it actually becomes a lucrative career, which let me tell you from tour managing as many bands as I have, very few of them make any serious money at all. And they would be better off working, uh, you know, working at a supermarket. It's, it's, it's absolutely crazy. The, the economics of touring, like even when you get up to the, the levels that you're doing theaters and touring in a bus, 
once you've broken down the the finances of that tour, the amount that the actual artists in the band take away as a kind of pay packet for the for the tour, it, it's pitiful. It's it's shocking once you actually see how that stuff works. And it's made all more confusing when, you know, we go with our parents or our family members for a big night out as like a luxury event, you know, maybe a couple of times a year mm. to, to a big gig. And, you know, as the people going and, you know, we're like kind of, you know, in this state of awe of these people on stage and they're making less money than, than we might. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's this classic thing of, of economics where, you know, nine, you know, five, you know, between what, five and one percent or so are making 90 percent of the money you know so you look at the big arena tours sure they're raking it in you know they're making multi-million pounds each night filling out an arena or a stadium but then you know you look at all the other gigs happening in that county over the night you know all of these little pub shows or little 500 cap rooms filled out with people and none of that is profitable there's one show a night in you know in a county that is and the rest is all basically breaking even if you're lucky um so yeah it's 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 really fascinating and and you know I'm, I'm glad that i spent you know what 10 15 years in the music industry to see how that all worked because you know when i started out going to gigs aged 15 16 up in london i was completely in awe you know and i'd go to gigs five six nights a week in london and and just be like this is absolutely amazing i want to be a part of this because i didn't understand a thing of what was going on on stage in front of me and now that i can you know i can budget you if you would show me some dates i could tell you pretty much you know pretty accurately exactly how much money you're going to walk away from that tour with you know worldwide tour it's it's you know I've, I've definitely got to the point now where i i can say i understand the live music business and it is pretty mind-blowing once you once you understand how that all works and, and how the money just doesn't seem to exist in it it's bizarre working as a tour manager in the last 10 years how mm. how was your you know looking back on that i mean i know it's, i know it's sort of a, a recent time but that must have been quite fascinating you know, again, to see that other side. And I mean, you're, you know, without saying anything, you know, it's not like, it's not like I disagree with it at all. I like, I think jobs are there to be, because you're looking after the bands and you're providing mm. a service for those bands. But I mean, you are being paid more than those bands most of the time, presumably. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Um, you, you can, if you want to feel bad about, it. you know, it's there for you to feel yeah. bad about because you can think, well, I was in that position where my band, for, for a couple of our tours, we could afford a tour manager. And if you are the musician like I was in the band up until that point that did all of the itineraries, did all of the accounting, sent out all the merch, did all the driving, then you just think, you know what, instead of us making a bit of money, I'd rather just not have to work my ass off every day on tour and pay someone else to do it so that I can be more focused on delivering a good show. Because as I said, when you're sitting for a van eight hours a day, you know, it's one thing sitting there, but if you're the one driving it and then you have to load in and then play a show, you know, this is the other thing people don't realize about touring. Like you're working probably anywhere between what, 12 and 18 hours a day doing something or another. You know, it's, it's not off time really. So the amount, you know, if you were to look at it again, financially as a kind of what's your, your hourly rate, I mean, it would be so far below the minimum wage that, you know, it'd be absolutely laughable. But yeah, no, the, as I said, the, the economics is just, is just baffling. And the, the fact that, yeah, most of the time on most tours, I'd be getting paid far more than I'd be, you know, the highest paid person on that tour. It's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. But then, you know, it's like, well, I, I, I can charge what I charge because I've got the experience. You know, what, at the end of my touring career, I was getting paid pretty well because I had, you know, 10 years experience on the road. So, you know, it's, 
again, simple economics, if that's how much I charge and people are willing to pay it, then I must be worth that much. You mentioned it there, how, you know, you, you think, you know, you're in the van or you're waiting for soundcheck or after the show. And it's, it's actually, it's, it's kind of like cruelly hysterical how there's actually no time off because I, my, my old band, Great Cynics, we toured quite a lot throughout my early twenties. And since not touring so much and having a flat that I can, you know, pay rent for now, it, you know, I, I, I sit back in my living room having a you know a cup of tea for that you know however few however many few hours a day, and I'm like, fuck! How did I not do this before? Like this is the time that I actually feel like normal. This is my recharge time. This is my recalibration time. Yeah, it's it's when you don't have that. No, 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 and and that's the thing people really don't realize about touring is just like it's it's so intense the whole time you're with and you're with the same people that you've probably been playing with and having arguments with for the last however many years, you're then stuck in a van or a bus or on a plane with these people for you know however many weeks or months, playing the same songs every night, trying to make the same jokes in between songs, land with the audience to keep them in, inspired because you just, you know, you just want to be off the stage sometimes and just, you know, but, but the, yeah, I mean, I used to, after a show, I used to just go, I used to find somewhere quiet to sit and read. Like sometimes I'd just go and sit in the back of the van and just sit and read for for an hour or two and just decompress afterwards. Like, yeah. it's, you know, it's quite common that people just try and find, you know, especially when you're on long European tours, you know, as soon as you get to the venue, if there's time, everyone just disappears off in different directions and just tries right. to get away for a while. And it's, right. you know, it, it's, to me, that seems completely natural, completely normal and a rational thing to do. It's like, you need some alone time just to gather your thoughts, you know, speak to family members or whatever as well. And, um, yeah. But even that requires some kind of discipline because I, I, I was totally guilty of, of being like, I want to hang out with everyone all the time or, you know, I want to go for a mm-hmm. beer or yeah. you know, this is the, the social factor of it definitely, um, you know, permeated me more than it should. Yeah. And I mean, this is this and the dirty secret of music that no one bothers to talk about is, is, is the amount that alcohol fuels this whole thing. It's, it's mm. the, you know, I, maybe not so much anymore, but you know, you remember growing up when it was like the Carling Academy and all this stuff. And, and you know, you think about how Reading and Leeds are like two Borg sponsored festivals. And it's like all this stuff where booze, you know, and on the rider, it's like the right, you know, you tell, you speak to any normal person about a rider and they just think balls of Jack Daniels. And it's like, we, we've completely normalized this idea that you should be drunk the whole time. It's like a coping mechanism. Yeah. And it really is, you know, yeah. the amount of musicians that I tour with that were just alcoholics. And you think, well, Every day, you know, the days of the week don't matter when you're on tour. You never know what day of the week it is, really, um, because it doesn't matter. You're either playing a gig or you're not. Um, mm. Drinking from midday is basically completely cool, because why not? Because what else are you going to do? You're in a van for, for however many hours. You might as well crack a beer because you've taken a rider with you from the show the night before. Like, what mm. else are you going to do? The, the, you know, and you, you said about discipline. Like, sure, there are some musicians that are super disciplined on tour you know they read all day they would keep a journal some of the graphic designers or they have freelance jobs where they you know some of them would be producers they'd be working mixing down tracks and stuff but then on the other end of the spectrum you've got the people that would just drink 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 sleep in till three in the afternoon and then just crawl out of bed you know and go and play a show i mean some of the artists that i was tour managing i literally had to wake one guy up at 7 30 p.m off the bus grab him off the bus and throw him onto stage and he played the show in his pajamas and then he was as I was grabbing him off the bus he was like all right I'm coming I'm coming I'm coming reached into the fridge cracked a beer and took it with him and ran to stage with it as he was handed his guitar by his guitar deck and then ran out on stage in his pajamas still that he'd been sleeping in up until that point I mean it's 
Uh, but but yeah, I mean, the alcohol side of things is, is amazing. No one, no one, I mean, the thing is, is that the venues without it, you know, we're not in Europe, you know, we, our venues aren't government supported in this country. So mm. without mm. the booze, forget it. You know, it's not happening. There's absolutely yeah. no way that venues would survive without it. So we just don't talk about it. Getting paid in beers, getting paid in it instead of actual cash. Right. Yeah, I mean, that was always the, the, yeah, that's it, isn't it? Before, you know, before your band starts getting paid money for shows, it's like, well, we can give you some beers and that's about it. And it's like, yeah. how is, how is like 12 warm car legs payment for anything? I mean, in my world, right. that's punishment. If I was forced to drink that, I mean, yeah, I've definitely done something wrong, you know, but. So when you started the band in, in college, when you, you know, when college ended and uh, presumably your friends were getting jobs or, or moving on to further education, what was your, what was Tube Lord's attitude? Um, well, we, we actually, Zoe and I went to uni. We actually, everyone, everyone at that college pretty much went off to uni to do one thing or another. Um, so we just carried on through that, you know. Um, Zoe went to Cheltenham and I went to Oxford Brooks, admittedly only last six months. Um, but Zoe, you know, did a full degree um, and we managed to just keep it going. And, you know, uni holidays are quite long. So we just toured throughout them. Um, so, and there's the student student loan as well. Oh, the beautiful student loan. Damn, I bought so many pairs of shoes. Um, <laughs> it was ridiculous. I have paid shoes. it back though. I've actually paid mine back. Have you? I'm quite pleased about. It. Yeah. I mean, it was only you know it was only one term's worth, so it's not that much, you know. But still, right. I'm, and it I'm actually glad. was before 2012, whenever it went up. Yeah, yeah, before it was preposterously expensive, um, which, yeah. Um, that's funny i don't think many people i know including myself will be paying our student debts off anytime soon no probably not no i mean as i said it was it wasn't a huge amount and i was just my the last few years of tour managing were quite well paid and i managed to get to the point where it was you know i could i was in a position to pay it off and i just thought then it's just done and then i'm not accruing all the interest on it and you know so you lasted a term because because of tube lord's touring schedule um, I just didn't enjoy, honestly, I wasn't mentally ready to go to uni. I've, I've only, I think I've matured properly when I was about 28 or 29, um, to the point In where what kind of sense just like became an actual adult. I think I've been very immature up until that point. Um, just in terms of like how I felt about things and life and being serious about, you know, what I actually wanted to achieve. Um, and being you know this this whole thing with with learning to be a commercial pilot you know i'd always put off doing something serious like that just because it seemed i just thought oh i'm not i'm not academic minded i'm not going to be able to learn anything i'm just going to have to kind of get through life doing basically music you know what music has taught me which is how to be a tour manager um Mm. but then it was only in my late 20s that i kind of thought maybe there is something more to this and and you know once you've done enough touring and you've seen you know you get disillusioned when you're dealing with you know pretty useless people from various sides of the industry. I just thought, oh, it's got to be something more than this. I wonder if I can, you know, do something else. And actually with the flying thing, I started off just just getting a private pilot's license just for fun to see if I could do it. And I thought, geez, this is going to be really tough. And within about a year, I got that license. And towards the end of it, I just thought, oh, that was actually quite easy. And I actually really enjoyed flying's fun, but actually the learning part was what I enjoyed the most. And I realized that I'd really missed out on actually being challenged and, and learning and now i've you know since doing the commercial um training theory course which um is is kind of it's it's basically like doing your a levels in six months instead of a, over a two-year period 
it's it's extremely intensive training um it's you know when you got that license that's for that's for like a small like one of those tiny little airplanes you might see flying over a countryside field exactly yeah so i can yeah i got my license for that and um but yeah, and at the end, towards the end of the training, I spoke to my, my instructor and I was like, hey, listen, I'm really enjoying training. Do you think I could train to be a commercial pilot? And she said, yeah, go for it. Like, you, 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 should, you should definitely do that if you want to do it. So, wow. yeah, I think I just finally got to the point where I was like, okay, I'm actually, I found something that I do actually want to learn about. And I'm not, I'm not a typical academic in the sense of being able to write essays. I don't know if I ever will be, but I'm, I'm much more of a vocational learner. And luckily, I, you know, aviation is all about learning you know, you're basically learning rules and laws and, and how yeah. to fly a thing and what to do in, in wow. situations. So it's, it's, it's you know, I'll, I'll never be academic. I don't know if I'll ever write another essay in my life, but, you know, at least I'm getting a further education of, of one sort by doing this. It's not, a, it's not a loaded question by any means, but do you think that kind of immaturity helped being in a band, helped, you know, that kind of attitude where you're just thinking about maybe the next week ahead? 100%. Yeah, I mean music's it's you know touring like that you are basically a child because you don't have any responsibilities again especially with the with the musicians that i was working with when i was tour managing them you know that life is is very simple if you want it to be on tour you know you can be completely shepherded around at all times by your tour manager you know this idea of herding kittens that's exactly what tour managing is most of the time you're just trying to get a bunch of immature drunks from one place to another up onto a stage to play a show and then back into the hotel or whatever it's um you know and that's not everyone you know i'm 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 generalizing there um and a lot of people are extremely responsible but there are enough people out there that are so hopeless um and so immature you know it does just seem like this kind of never-ending peter pan kind of ideal and when it came to recording was that a different story and writing writing was great fun it was really really satisfying especially when you get to that point where everyone in the room is just like, yes, that's exactly how it should sound. That's sick. Or someone goes, Oh, why don't we do that bit there and bring that back in? And you're like, let's try it. You do it. And then you just look around and everyone's grinning and you're like, sweet, I can nail that. Um, but, but I, I mean, I loved recording for me. Like I didn't really enjoy recording drums because you know, that's the first thing that you record along with a scratch track. Um, and so there's a lot of pressure on you to nail the drums. And there's so much pressure. And it's that kind of thing in the, in my experience where, you know, the, the engineer might be setting up for uh, however long, you know, up to a few hours maybe, whilst, you know, the, you as the drummer, you're, pl- you're playing along, you know what you're playing, all good. And then as soon as the red light goes on, the thing that you've just been going through up to 10 times, you don't have that potency that you did the hour before. And I feel I've seen that happen and I've just felt so sorry for, for the drummer. Yeah. And it's also such like, you know, especially with the stuff that we were recording, whenever you're recording like rock music or whatever, you, you have to play so hard. Like the drums sound good only if you really smack them harder than you've ever, like harder than you would when you're playing live. At least that's what our producer made me do. Maybe he was just didn't like me, but you know, it's, it's physically so demanding and you're doing the same thing over and over. And as you said, it's like 10, however many takes, you just keep going and going and going. It's horrible, man. I hated recording drums. It was just so unsatisfying. Like, but you know, for me, the, the sweet release would be at the end when we were doing all the vocal parts, because me and Zoe would record all the vocals, you know, she would put down the leads and I would try and do as much harmonizing as possible. Cause I really enjoyed doing that. And yeah. that's, uh, you know, especially cause you're at the end, then you can really, feel it all coming together and then you're putting on the little final you know little icing on the cake little bits here and there and that that's you know 
there's a sweet release to it there. So in a way, it's kind of cool, I guess, because you're doing the first bit and the last bit of the recording session, so you can really see how it's how it's come along. Did that kind of recording process did that change much for you, like over over the years? It it did and it didn't. We always so we at college we met we started um so we started playing and then in our, in the other group in our year there was the band color formed and they they went on to become tangled hair after that so color were it was alan's like best mate jamie field who who ended up playing who ended up recording all of our stuff and being our keyboard player he we alan said to us oh you, you should use jamie he can go and record you he's got a mobile setup he'll just come and record you in your front room or whatever so we started off working with him and he was pretty much the only producer we ever worked with throughout, you know, the however many years we were the band. But when we, the only time we didn't record with him was when we did, um, when we got our, we got our publishing deal with Sony and our management were like, well, you need to, you know, use a real producer now and go into a real studio and make it sound, you know, like your debut album's really, you know, elevated you to the next level, which, you know, makes sense, but cost us so much money and, and I don't know if it was much better than we could have done just with Jamie in a nicer studio. But anyway, yeah. Um, but the, you know, the producer we worked with then was, was, was pretty, he, he was great as well. So I don't, I don't, I don't regret any of the recordings we did, but it was pretty much all with Jamie and just working with him was just great because he just, his attitude in general in life is just, he's one of the best people I know. He's such a, a positive and rational, but also like very funny person. He's just got a certain way of thinking about things that just kind of makes you makes you think about stuff in a slightly different way. I just remember that the, the life lesson that he's taught me that I carried on with me, like, and I'll never forget. We were on tour when he was playing with us, and we were all like bummed out because we, we knew we were going to have to load in for the you know fiftieth time, or whatever, to a venue. And he was just like, "Oh, why don't if we just tell ourselves that we like loading in, we can probably enjoy it. Like, let's just try that." And we're like, yeah, whatever. And then after a few days, we were all so excited to load in every day that we would like race as soon as the van pulled up, we'd all just jump out and try and load in as much stuff as possible. And it's Brilliant. like just that that kind of mindset that, that he brought to to us. I don't know if anyone else in the band has kind of taken that away from it. But for me, it was just that's really changed my attitude towards life. It's like you've got to do stuff, right? But some things in life you just have to do, like doing the washing up or like scrubbing out the toilet. Like yeah you could say it sucks but you could also not say it sucks you could say you enjoy it and you could take pride in it either way it needs doing so like why why put a negative spin on something that has to be done it's like do you enjoy breathing or do you dislike breathing it's like well most people are pretty pretty whatever about it and that's cool but imagine you were psyched about like the most banal things your life would be really good and that's basically <laughs> what he taught me and it's like why not like what do you lose what do you lose by doing yeah. that? Absolutely nothing. Awesome. You just become a more positive awesome. person. Literally, the first recordings we did, I mean, apart from the ones that we did at college, just to learn how to use the gear, as soon as we wanted to get him to actually record us. I mean, so we recorded like three three demo tracks at college ourselves. And then after that, he came in and did everything. I think even those tracks we sent to him to mix anyway. So, yeah, I mean, he did our first few EPs. Um, and then first American Friends we did in a studio up in North London. Shout out Hassel. Yeah, man. Yeah, I missed those guys' office. They had a really good falafel place downstairs, so we could they would bring us falafel wraps whenever we went in for meetings. So that was pretty sweet. So yeah, shout out to Hassel. Those guys are rad. Um, but we did, yeah. So that record we didn't do with Jamie, but then after that, I think everything else we did. We did that Tezcat EP with him. We did like an acoustic version of our first American friends, um, which we recorded in my 
in my old dining room at my house. That was really fun. Was that before every band did acoustic versions? I mean, look, I'm not going to say that we were blazing any trails here. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't say something like that. But um, I don't know. The answer is yes. <laughs> probably. I don't know. I, you know, my, my memory is so bad that I don't know when we did it. It might just been last week we recorded. I can't remember. But um, but no, that was great for me because it was like we could kind of go back and fix all the things that we didn't have time to fix when we recorded the album. And and I would advise more bands to do that. Maybe it's a really nice thing sense? to like, fix. It. Well, we we got we got to like there were certain tracks that you would listen back to after you recorded them, and you just you know we were just chatting, go like, oh, wouldn't it be sick if we'd done that chorus there, or like, or or when we would play them live, we would rewrite them and play them differently. And so when we got to record them acoustically, we record kind of acoustic versions of the reworkings of how we would play them live because we thought that was I a see. better way of playing them. And like some of the arrangements are just like really, really beautiful and simple. And actually like they kind of prove that you don't just need a three piece band playing as loud as they can for, for an hour. Like you can actually, there's, there's dynamic and nuance that an acoustic record brings out that actually, it, if you strip these songs back, it's like, oh, there's actually some really nice stuff in there, you know? Yeah. That's so, actually come up in this podcast before about like the science of touring, especially when you're repetitively playing the same songs, you yeah. know, a hundred times plus throughout a year that you do make those shifts and, and they actually, they actually transform the song into something different, whether for you, you know, for you, whether for other people, I'm not sure, but that, that is an interesting thing about how songs do change when you play them live. Absolutely. And, and this is the thing that I've, as an audience member, like going to see, I remember seeing like Brand New and seeing Mars Volta and just being so annoyed that they didn't play the songs exactly like they were on the record. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then you think, yeah. okay, like these guys are playing these tracks like hundreds of times. Do you realize how fucking boring that is? And like, if right. you want to listen to the record, just go and listen to the record. Like if you want to see a band live, you have to accept that, you know, you're on their turf now. Like they're going to do things how they want to do it. Now, for some bands, that's going to be detrimental. And if they suck live, people are not going to buy tickets and then their live career is going to go down the toilet. So there's a trade-off between like, again, what we went, what we started with, this idea of like, well, what's, you know, what's the aim of the band? Is it to be commercially successful or is it to be like artistically integral? But at the same time, you've got to pay the bills. So, you know, I, towards the end of my career at tour managing, I'm, you know, I'm just encouraging bands to do whatever the fuck they want live as long as it keeps them going, you know, whatever keeps them yeah. sane on the road. And yeah, if you want to do a different live version, maybe it'll land with the audience, maybe it won't. But like, you may as well try and figure that out, see. But, Especially for drummers change, switching up fills. I mean, that's, that's like, yeah, that's a given, right? Because you can, you know, it's such a minor part unless there's some like absolute drum nerd in the front that gets really pissed off. That you Which there will the be, there are always going to be drum nerds. Exactly. But, you know, for most people, it's like, oh, the singer's singing a different thing. That's annoying. I can't sing along with them. And that's the, then you lose that sense of togetherness. And I think you feel betrayed, right? You're like, I came here yeah. to sing as part of a group, but like the leader mm. of the group has now switched up the, 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 the message or the melody. And like, and now I'm lost. I'm like, huh? I thought, but I thought we were on the same sheet. And like, you know, I guess the group psychology of that makes sense. It's like, you know, if you were to go to like church and then the, the uh, you know, the priest starts spouting some stuff about like completely other religion or, or something completely different. You're like, huh? This isn't what I signed up for. And, and lyrics is such a sort of first person experience. Right. And, and we, and, you know, as audience members, we, 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 we add so much to them in terms of our emotions. You know, it can be like, oh, that was mm. the first song that I kissed my girlfriend to, or like, you know, anything like that. Oh, that's a breakup track. You know, once they're, once they're laced with that much emotion, yeah, you're only basically ever going to be disappointed when it goes wrong live. Um, 
but but at the same time you know i empathize on the side of the musician as i said like i get it you're playing this song hundreds of times you must be so bored of it like and you have the right you know you wrote the song you reserve the right to do whatever the fuck you want it's your piece of art you know i completely get that but at the same time don't you know don't be surprised if the audience don't like it you know you you can't be mad at the audience for not liking what you haven't given them basically or what you gave them that's changed it was nice to come full circle as someone that you know used to go to shows and now fully understands the industry and understands why all these things happen because now i can see it from both sides you know when i go and see a band now which i rarely do i mean obviously not at all now but even back in the past you know i'd rarely go to shows anymore because once you understand everything that's going on it's hard to detach from that and really get lost in the music anymore and you want, you know, yeah. so much, you know, every crew member that I'd see working in the wings or crossing the stage, I'd be like, oh, well, they're obviously, okay, there's this many crew. So they're probably on a bus, which means that they're probably having to leave the venue at this time. And it's just like, why am I thinking of this stuff? Why am I enjoying this show? It's so annoying. Like, I just. Well, I, wonder, I wonder if it's because those nuances and those tiny little things, like you, you become, I mean, I've got, I've got a thing about uh like you know when you i've got an interview with thurston moore coming out on this podcast and he mm-hmm. talks a lot about through the years just analyzing you know studying music studying people when they play and i yeah. think that our brains go to all these different kinds of places when we when we become so accustomed to being in that live music environment right i mean start, especially for a musician like into those, yeah sorry. well especially i was gonna say for a musician like that you know, you have to be tuned in because you are constantly analyzing what everyone else in the band is doing. And you, you know, if someone makes a mistake or, or goes, takes a tune somewhere that you weren't expecting or whatever, it's like, you need to, you need to be ready for that. You need to be ready to like, mm. you know, or if someone speeds up, it's like, are we all going to speed up with them or are we all going to try and bring them back down and, you know, maintain eye contact <laughs> and bring them back down to our pace? You know, it's like, yeah, I, yeah. you know, I'm guessing that person's in a kind of, you know, every time he hears music now, it's like it elicits this response in his brain where he has to lock on and, you know, he goes straight back into playing live mode where it's like analysis, yeah. you know, because that's, yeah. that's your career right there. That's, that's your that's your craft. Yeah. So what was, what was Tube Lord's concept in terms of, you know, if someone sped up or, you know, would it would you bring would, would, would the drums always anchor it? I generally play pretty fast get out of control um yeah it's pretty bad until we got our last bass player that was the thing until we got tom on board like when he came along i mean no no disrespect to all the other bass players that we had over the years but none of them were really either amazing as good as he was or they were actually just guitar players that were like you know got relegated to playing bass and but tom was the first bass player that i played with that was actually a bass player like that was his instrument and it wasn't like some cop out like he wanted to play bass and he loved playing bass and he sh- he taught me as a drummer like what a rhythm section is and so when we played right. we would constantly be looking at each other and playing with each other like locked in just bass and drums and we would rehearse like that we'd rehearse just bass and drums through songs so we right. knew exactly where we were going and like what each part was doing and he would anchor me like he would keep me from rushing too fast you know and that's that that was when it all changed that second record when when he came along i was like oh now i like basis and now i actually want to be able to hear the bass in my wedge and i actually want to be able to like play along to the music with this guy because he's so good at what he's doing i mean he completely changed the band for me at least i don't know about the others but for me it was like it, it was a whole new band at that point so was that difficult for you to adjust because i think we all have these no, it things great. That in, in, <laughs> it was so really good great no, carry on. I, sorry, what, what were you saying? I was, I was going to say we all, we, we, you know, we're creatures of habit, and sometimes we can be a bit like arrogant when we don't even know it. You know, like I, I think, I think, 
Yeah, I think I think I've been wanting someone like him for so long, and that's why we got through so many bass players because we just weren't content with what they were bringing. And when he finally came along, it was like, oh, okay, no, you're the one. You're not, you know, you are, you're the guy. This is it. Yeah. No, we knew at that point. Yeah. You know, it's like this whole right. kind of love at first sight thing. When you know, you know. And it was like, he's the guy. He's yeah, definitely right. like the bass player that we need. And he's just, yeah, he's he's such a good. Again, another really great guy. He's he's now working. Last I spoke to him, he was working. He was working at Warner Chapel for a while, and I think he he then went and did a degree in psychology, and I think he's back at Warner's now, and he's um he's really pushing this mental health musicians um idea where like the publishers are now starting to put um, mental health um um checkups and stuff into their contracts right. when they sign artists, and he's oh, like been great. really pushing that. So it's just I like no, it, I mean he's yeah he's it's it's um yeah really really awesome thing, and he yeah I spoke to him maybe a year or so ago about this, and it just sounded like such a great idea, you know, because another yeah. thing, like we said, mental health with musicians, it's it's being talked about more now, which is good, but like he's trying to make it so that the people with the real money and the real clout, which is the publishers, you know, they're taking their share of the responsibility, which I think is, right. you know, definitely a needed thing. And there's action there rather than a sort of a, a rhetoric. Exactly. Yeah, it's like it's written into a contract. They have to provide yeah. musicians with mental yeah. health counselling if they need it. Because, yeah. you know, like, you know, artists are generally, you know, n probably not always in the best mental health, you know, because they're artists, you know, their brains are creative. So they they probably more than more than most people have, you know, there's something about the art, the creative's brain where it doesn't work as what we would call, you know, quote unquote normal, you know, because yeah. that's what makes them artists, because they think differently to most people and they see things in creative ways. And that's amazing. But at the same time, like if we want to exploit them, which is, you know, that was what blew my mind about about the music industry. The first time I saw the word exploit in a in a contract, and it's like that's exactly what a contract is. It's it's you know a recording contract is to exploit the exploit the music for all the money that it's able to process. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, and so you Fucking you come up against agreements as well. You know, sure, sure, right. But 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 it's so it's so weird to see it in in an artist artistic setting. You know, like the word exploit yeah, and yeah. art. They don't seem like they go together, but of course they have yeah. because it's real life. It's like you have to put money on the table somehow, you know. Right. So, right. so I think the responsibility that that the money makers have is like, you know, you want to exploit these these artists. Well, then you need to take care of them mentally, you know, because you're 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 putting out all these promises that they're going to be these massive musicians to playing to people that adore them. But what when they're not? You know, like what what happens when they put out a record and no one likes it and they have to deal with you know, playing to half empty rooms for a, for a year doing this album tour. Like that's, that's psychologically damaging. Like I know it is because yeah. I've seen it firsthand and I've seen people burn out on tour and I've seen, you know, it, it's real. So I'm glad that- Have you experienced that kind of thing? Myself? Yeah. Or um, as I said, like there were times touring when at the end of the show, like I would have to get out of the area and I would just go and sit in, in, a, in the van on my own and just read. When we were touring- when Tubal were touring with Blackfish, I remember they would headline most of the time. And so once we had finished, we would I would have at least like about an hour or so to kill before we would leave the venue. So I would go and sit and I just needed to basically be alone in the dark and just mm. kind of reflect. I was never happy with how we played live. Like I don't I I rarely enjoyed any of our live shows. I think mm. I was always yeah, well, I think there's the perfectionist side of things for sure. Like just it not being I think I wanted it to be perfect like the records were, which is so absurd because, you know, having recorded a record, you know that 
a, a song on record isn't one take. So there's no such thing as a perfect like playthrough of a song. There never would be. So mm. I was basically aiming for something that was completely un, you know, unrealistic. And then like, because we were never playing at good enough venues, my monitor mix was never good. And, you know, we could never afford our own engineer. Well, we did a little bit, but still it was like the monitor mixes would change every night because, you know, you're in a different venue and you're not carrying your own audio gear and you don't have in-ear monitors because we were, you know, just a little poor DIY band. So it was just never as good as I wanted it to be each night. And then, and then on top of that, you know, you're following ticket sales, you know, throughout the tour and looking at, oh, okay, we're going to be playing to a half empty room again, as usual. And just, you know, once you play the show, you're, you know, emotionally completely empty at that point. You've given all of your adrenaline over and you just, I would just always have to go and decompress for an hour or so after the show and just want to be, you know, alone in, in silence and just kind of brood over it for a while. And you mentioned about the, the were you published by Sony? Yeah, our, one of our managers had an imprint with Sony. He had like a deal with them. Um, and he, yeah, so basically we, we, we got like a small publishing advance through Sony ATV. Did that feel like a sort of career, you know, turning up on the, on the career scale? Kind of, but not really. It was like, I knew that we were only ever going to be a certain size. And I knew that as long as Zoe was going to keep writing songs as she was going to write them, and that was never going to change, I knew that we were going to be limited by that and we were never going to get any bigger than that. And so like, while the Sony money was helpful, it basically just, it was like the advance came in and then we just paid a producer. So this other thing that, you know, you get with the the industry is where basically a lot of a lot of what I see in the industry is just bands existing to basically support the careers of all of the music industry people around them. But they're not actually, you know, they might have some fans, but really, you know, a lot of the bands I've tour managed over the years, you look at and you just think, you'll be gone in a few years and I don't think that many people are going to care whether you existed or not. And you just think, well, I'm getting paid and your manager's getting paid and your agent's getting paid and your lawyers are getting paid. But what... Mm, it's like that's pretty depressing isn't it it is this is what i'm saying man this, this is where i had to get out after 10 years because you just think oh i see what's happening here and most of these bands no one's ever heard of no one will ever really care about you know and and it's it's like yeah they exist to basically just keep money flowing around the industry so that and, and this is the thing you know with majors or any label really they basically, you know, how many, how many Beyonce's had to get signed so that that one Beyonce is the one that you've heard of, you know, they'll sign 20 mm. artists on development deals. And one of them makes back all of the money that they pay to the other 19 artists. Mm. And, yeah. And, yeah. and so if you're Beyonce, great. But if you're one of those other artists that's been butted up by your manager and all the lawyers and all the industry people and taken to Soho house for a meeting and then, you know, and, and you're like, Oh my God, we're going to make it. And you don't, of course you don't, because the chances of you making it are so slim like you you basically you basically loosened up some money from sony and then it's going to go and pay some other people so that they can nurture some other talent to bring them deals so that that money then goes back to sony one way or another and it all just the money comes just kind of sloshes around the industry from one pocket to the other um and it's 
it can be pretty disheartening. But, you know, at the same time, like there are bands out there like ours who maybe for some people we were their favorite band for a while and we probably wrote some music that some people really like totally. and it's not many people totally. you know it's a few people and that's you know cool like i got a career out of it i wouldn't be what i'm i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing now and i wouldn't have been, i wouldn't have been able to become a tour manager if it weren't for for, for tube lord so it's it's a really weird kind of position to be in when you're so aware and i've seen the economics of it so i understand exactly how it works but at the end of the day it's like what is there to show for it it's like well we're doing a re-release and it's like oh that's cool some people will buy that i guess and that's nice and I think it brings up the really fucked up question. Say if like five people in Kingston or in Greater London, your uh, Tube Lord are their favourite band. Mm. Why Why does that make, why is anyone else more important than those people? Do you know what I mean? Why, why should yeah, a particular why fan... Full of people, more important, or, or does it matter where you get to in the charts as long as somebody likes it, right? Right. From, 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 a, from that purely artistic point of view, that's the best thing in the world, your record being devoured. Sure. Yeah. And only if one person likes it. I mean, if even if the band are the only people that likes it, like our second record, I don't think anybody liked, but we loved it. We really enjoyed making it. It was a really good, fun time. Like, mm. I think there were some cool songs in there. It was really good fun. And it, you know, it still brings me joy when I listen to it sometimes. So, I mean, that's right. the thing about art, isn't it? It's like, it doesn't right. matter if anyone likes it or not. If it's art, it's art because it exists for its own sake. And that's it. And it doesn't need to, it doesn't need to like satisfy sales criteria. Like that's something that's, that's been applied to it by the music industry, but the art will exist. You know, people banging on, you know, on canoes made of wood 3,000 years ago weren't weren't worrying about the charts or, you know, if they were selling out venues. They were just doing it because it sounded good. It's the same thing with folk music, isn't it? It exists for the sake of it existing. It's not, it doesn't matter if, you know, if, if you're selling any stuff, it's just, are you enjoying what you're doing? Are you playing music for the sake of it and enjoying it? So- 100%. I mean, that's the point well, how, so when Hassel came on board, did, what, what, what was that period of time like? Did that feel like, a, you know, another moment in the band? Yeah, I mean, so all of these things coming together, it's like, well, we're recording a record. We need someone to put it out with. So, like, OK, well, what are our options? You've got this on the table, this, this or this. And then your manager's like, well, this seems like the best option in terms of they're going to be the best for getting it out to the most people. And you're like, well, I mm -hmm. want to get it out to the most people because then you know, maybe we can play in bigger venues, maybe we can sell more stuff, you know, maybe we, and, and not just, you know, so we make more money because we made pennies throughout the years in Tubular, but, you know, it's like, at least we can pay for better, you know, a better live show. At least we can, you know, bring on a sound engineer or a tour manager or like play slightly bigger rooms or play with better bands, you know? So, yeah, I mean, every one of those steps. Yeah, I, I mean, for, for, I guess, this is going to sound bad things we're promoting a hassle release but the first time that we spoke to kev from bsm as as a band that i think because that was our first step on the ladder it wasn't that it was the biggest step on the ladder it was just getting onto the ladder it's like oh now like, a, yeah it's like oh someone from a record label actually cares about our band like that's the validation that you want at that point when you go yeah. from a band that's just put out demos to oh someone from the music industry actually knows about us and likes our music like that's amazing um changes things doesn't it it does yeah you're like oh wait so this could actually be a thing like i think you just kind of come to value what you're doing a bit more and you just realize that like oh people people like this so yeah i mean it, it's gonna it's gonna inflate your ego slightly right i mean i don't think it can't not do that but again like trying to remember back to the person i was 15 years ago and how i would have felt about things i'm sure i would have been pretty stoked about it and pretty happy to tell people about it um but at the same time it's like it's one of these things where on the outside it seems crazy. It's like, oh my God, this band just signed to this label. And it's like, okay, cool. Well, here's the advance. 
you're going to have to spend all that on your lawyer and on studio time and in advance. And, oh, there's nothing left to pay you guys with, but. Uh, right. You know. And you mentioned and you've, you had a manager. Option? Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. So what's that, what's that like having as having a manager as a sort of like, you know, kind of homemade DIY, you know, coming from that place? Well, it was this, this guy and his, it was these two managers approached us saying like, look, um, we'd like to manage you and we can get you, you know, essentially a manager's job is to get you a record and a publishing deal, right? That's the whole point. Um, and it just felt like to us, it was like, well, this is the next, this is the next step on the ladder. You know, you say like as a DIY band, it's like, we're a DIY band because that's how you start off. You do it yourself. But we knew yeah. that, you know, it's not like, you know, Metallica aren't managing themselves because they're a DIY band. It's, you know, you start somewhere and then you progress. And the way that you progress is by adding all these things that, that real bands, you know, inverted commas have. So yeah. it was like, oh, well, of course we need to get a manager and then they'll get us a lawyer and then we'll get a record deal and a publishing deal. And, and then, you know, in my mind, it was like, cool, this is all steps towards us becoming a fully functional, like self-sustaining rock band that can actually, you know, put, you know, this can be our career. Um, and obviously it didn't turn out that way, but you still, it's like, if that's what you want, you should still aim for that. So you, you right. need all these things to, to make that happen. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. David, we're, we're coming up to time, but it's so good to hear about all this stuff about Tube Lord that I never really knew. Only patching it together myself now, but thank God for Wikipedia. <laughs> right. There's some lies on well, there, especially... which I really enjoy, by the way, but I won't reveal them. <laughs> okay, good. We'll leave, that. we'll leave that in a question mark. Especially with hindsight as well, you know, looking back at it and seeing things maybe a bit more objectively. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been a long time. So as I said, shady memories, but um, yeah, it's, it's fun. It was such a different part of my life, but I don't regret a second of it. You know, it's made me definitely who I am today and I wouldn't have had the career over the last 10 years that I had without that band. So yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Yeah. So what's next with the, uh, what are the next few stages for you becoming a uh, commercial air pilot? Because that is, I mean, of all the 101 part-time jobs, David, that's pretty fucking sick. Well, yeah, but what a terrible time to want to become a pilot, right? Like the only well, thing you hear about is layoffs. Mm. So the chances of there being a buoyant job market when I finish my training are about zero. So that'll be Oh fine. yeah, but everyone's gonna everyone's planning their holidays for next year. I don't know <laughs> I am. Yeah, well, we'll see about that. Um yeah. Have, what have they said in the aviation industry in terms of COVID well, and looking and... about a what is it? They're thinking at the moment probably we'll return to normalcy in what 2024 probably in terms of the level Are you of joking? returning back to 2019 levels of of, of flights. Yeah, probably. Seriously, it takes time. You know, you, you fire all these pilots now. It's like you can't just rehire a pilot and, and expect them to start up again on Monday. And the same thing with airplanes that they put in storage. Like this stuff needs. You know, aviation is an extremely safe industry, and that's because there's a lot of training and a lot of maintenance required, and that stuff takes time and money. So you can't just restart an airline overnight. It's, it's not going to work like that. So right. as much as they just put the halt on everything overnight with the lockdown, it's like it's going to take, you know, it's going to take years for this stuff to recover. You know, all these jobs that have been lost, they, you know, people need retraining to, to be rehired for all this stuff. So it's, it's going to be a slow recovery, I think. But, you know, I don't, I'm not entirely sure. But at the moment, I mean, right. my training hasn't even restarted. So I'm still waiting. I was going to start in June in Portugal with my flight training and so far we've just been told there is no news uh, annoyingly the company that i'm training with their main base is in new zealand so until new zealand oh, reopens yeah. yeah and you know why would new zealand reopen until there's a vaccine or like a you know a proper cure they you know their, their yeah. health their health service can't deal with you know being 
being overloaded. So why would they bother taking in a load of cadets from England? It's not in their interest. So but hey, once you go back to Portugal, Portugal's a pretty sweet place to be hanging out for. How, yeah. how long? How long would that training be? Um, about four months, I think. Cool. Yeah, so that'll be all right. Pretty intense. Pretty intense stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when, even when I was learning for my my private um, license, I'd only go and do you know an hour or two of flying a day, and after that, your brain is completely useless because right. you know the intensity that that yeah. learning to fly you know just the amount of stuff you have to think about at all times it's it's a four-dimensional puzzle basically that you're trying to fit plus you're up in an airplane in the sky and you could easily just not be and then the ground's a long way down and death is quite oh, certain man. so yeah there's a lot to think about it's it's pretty taxing i remember my brain getting exhausted in driving lessons let alone <laughs> fucking a mile well, high. i'm teaching my girlfriend to drive at the moment so i can i can uh, i can understand that it's good it's good fun but uh yeah. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to catching up and and like I, I don't know. You should uh you should you should let everyone know when you when you do become a commercial pilot. <laughs> well, I don't use social media, so no one will know. But that's okay. Is well, is that part of the thing? I mean, especially with security in, in aviation. No, 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 no. There are loads of those loads of pilots vlogging and doing all that stuff. I just I just don't. Right. I just think social media is is a scourge on humanity. But that's that's just my opinion. Um, but I don't think it's right really anything. I think the mental health crisis that's going to come about with a whole generation of teenagers growing up with social media is going to be catastrophic. Um, you know, much like the, yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be pretty awful. So um, I'm I'm staying away from it now. And I kind of told you so vibe. Well, what a, uh, what a lovely note to end on. I'm sorry. Just you've been real. Um, but, you know, no, keep, man, keep, true. keep on the gram, keep talking kids. You'll be fine, I'm sure. I know. I know. I'm with you. I mean, even as a 29 year old and now I, I log on and I'm like, oh, that's just, you know, you see something and you're like, why is that bummed me out in a way that it just wouldn't have done otherwise? Well, that's why I don't do it. It's simple like everyone everyone says all about how much they dislike social media and they still use it it doesn't make any sense to me so but. black mirror is enough <laughs> yeah right awesome okay Great. david thank you so much for coming on yeah thanks that's good good to chat This is a Mighty Moon Media Podcast. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. 
Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.